Hello and welcome back to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Rupi Audula. And today we're going to be talking about principle four, eat plants or eat more plants and the impact of largely plant-based diets. I've got Ben Brown with me today, who's a naturopathic doctor, researcher, editor and director of clinical education for Pure Encapsulations in the UK. He's also author of his own book on gut health, The Digestive Health Solution, and he's co-authored a chapter in Nutritional and Integrative Strategies in Cardiovascular Medicine, which has a lot of crossover with what we're going to be discussing today. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Yeah, really good, thanks. And thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here. Of course, of course. So to keep the listeners up to speed, in the previous podcast, we've already talked about things like phytonutrients, the chemicals that we find in food, eating colorfully, eating fiber, and the multitude of different chemical compounds that we find in whole food. So you as the listener probably already understand that we have a general idea of why plants make up the majority of my plate. Yet despite this, there seems to be a lot of confusion about what to eat. So I thought we'd talk about like the huge similarity across multiple diets, including those as seemingly opposing as paleo and vegan and Atkins and Mediterranean and why they might have similar health benefits. What do you reckon? I mean, that is such a a great uh, question and observation at the same time. And, you know, one of the things you really notice in, you know, anyone who's got an interest in nutrition is that there are diet wars. Yeah. You know, everyone (laughs) thinks they've got the best diet and they get a bit standoffish about it. Yeah. But actually it's, you know, there are similarities across these seemingly different diets that are responsible for the health benefits. And they're actually quite generalizable. In fact, there was a fantastic study by Dr. David Katz at Yale uh, Mm -hmm. University where they did exactly what you've just asked, is they pulled together all the research on these different diets, Uh like paleo diets, Mediterranean diet, vegan diet, vegetarian diet, low-carb diet. (laughs) So many diets. (laughs) There's so many. Yeah, Yeah, and there's more than that. But what they did is they pulled all the, because there's a lot of studies on these now, they pulled all the data together and said, well, what are the things that explain the health benefits of these diets? And actually, they came up with one shared commonality across all of them, Uh mostly plants. Mostly plants, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so whether you're paleo or vegetarian, it's the plants. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, like, you're right, there's so much infighting between these different sorts of dietary dogmas. And a lot of the things, you know, apart from eating just more plants, is limiting things like refined sugar Mm -hmm. and refined carbohydrates uh, and eating a variety of fruits and vegetables. If you just to do those two things alone, it can probably explain a lot of the successes of these apparently completely opposite diets. Yeah, 100% actually. And that's another finding that they came up with is that a you know, a commonality across these also is you avoid rubbish, mm. you know, so you, <laughs> you know, it's been said that there's no such thing as junk food, there's food and there's junk. And avoiding this highly processed, highly refined food that's associated very clearly with poor health mm. is one of the best things you can do. Yeah. You know? So we need to get away from naming ourselves based on the food that we eat and just talk about real food i think like one of the the first studies that i came across where i noticed that regardless of what diet you kind of uh, utilize you're going to have very similar outcomes and one of them is called the a to z diet that you probably come across the guy from stanford uh, professor gardner and they found that after 12 months of of these different diets all the participants lost weight 
and some to a different degree, but all of them lost weight. So it really comes down to the individual. It's more about how you feel on that diet, what is more convenient for you as well. And, you know, weight isn't the best outcome to measure across like health benefits, but it's still, you know, one of the things that is quite easy to measure. And I just found that absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So we've established that diets that largely consist of plants are the healthiest. Are there any that you've come across that have specific protection against things like stroke and blood pressure and cancer and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, that's really pertinent because these illnesses you've just mentioned are some of the major causes of death and disability in society today. So understanding which diets offer the most protections are really important question. And there has been a lot of work done in this area, both uh, observational studies, which has mean, you know, they look at what people eat and associate risk with disease, or there's also clinical intervention studies where they get nutritionists and, you know, health professionals to counsel people in diet, follow them for years, see what happens. And one of the best studied dietary approaches in this particular area is what we call the traditional Mediterranean style diet, which doesn't actually exist. It's yeah. just a, <laughs> it's just a model for healthy eating. Yeah. So it's like mostly plants, olive oil, mm. nuts and seeds, legumes, yeah. not too much red meat, that yeah. kind of stuff. But there are studies where they've used this for what we call both primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease, right? And the effects are really striking. Like if you look at primary prevention study. So that's in people who haven't had a previous cardiovascular event. You're really looking at within about four years time of following this kind of diet, about a 30% reduction in risk of death from mm. cardiovascular mm. disease. That is enormous. Yeah, like yeah. You can't understate those figures. And then for secondary prevention, people at high risk, you're looking at upwards of around 70% risk reduction, yeah, which is just- That's incredible. Like, like this- Food stops people dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is why I get so passionate about it because it's when you look at those sorts of numbers, it's not even like I need to qualify food as medicine. Food is medicine. Mm-hmm. And we could do a lot of good by actually heightening people's awareness of just how powerful our lifestyles can be. And listening to those stories and, and the anecdotes of patients as well as the large-scale studies is something that compounds my belief. But and that's absolutely fascinating, hey? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's such a great point is that food is medicine. We just need to get the message out. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I think a lot of people get riled up about meat, in particular red meat. I get asked this question so many times. So I'm going to put it to you. <laughs> is is meat healthy? Can we have meat and still lead healthy lifestyles? Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, based on the science that you know, exists today, I, I think it's quite clear that a small amount of red meat in context, you know, and we need to define, <laughs> yeah, we need to define what red meat actually is, you know, is yeah. it a hamburger or is it yeah. traditional stir fry or something mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. They're very different foods, mm-hmm. although they're both technically red meat. Mm. But it's quite clear that small amounts of unprocessed red meat as part of a healthy diet are not bad for you is the key thing Uh there. It doesn't mean you have to eat red meat or necessarily avoid it either, but a a small amount as part of a balanced diet seems to be okay, but it really depends on the quality of that food Mm -hmm. and how you're cooking it. One of the dangers we run into when we're talking about nutrition and food is defining food by its nutrients. Mm -hmm. And this has just caused so many problems and it really happens with protein and meat as well. You know, we don't eat protein. It doesn't Mm. exist in Mm. our diet. Mm. The foods that it contain, you know, are chemically complex and different to protein itself. So 
needs to be in context. I think that's a really good point because people seem to package certain foods as certain macronutrients. So I eat meat for protein. I eat vegetables for carbohydrates or fiber or whatever, or phytonutrients. Whereas there's protein in a banana. There is protein in everything you eat, essentially. And I think like actually getting people to realize that protein isn't just from meat proteins from plants as well and lots of different sources is something that would have an effect on people's eating habits yeah sure. mm. yeah absolutely so context is key i love that word and i use it a lot and i think it annoys a lot of people because people ask me questions expecting a straight answer is red meat harmful for example and they're just simple you know yes or no depends on the context and uh, I think a balanced approach to looking at the studies and recognizing that they are correlative is the first thing but there are some legitimate concerns about having too much red meat even if it is the finest quality red meat you can find having it on a daily basis may not be the best thing and I think it can cause some a bit of a confusion right because um, for example the eat well plate has meat on it so I think people expect you to have meat on a daily basis what what do you think of that do you have any opinions yeah that's absolutely right and i mean if you look at guidelines on red meat consumption you know based from the science by people like national cancer institutes and things because we know that one of the real fears with excessive red meat consumption is increased risk for colorectal cancer it's one Mm -hmm. of the main sort of correlates is they tend to recommend you know around 200 grams of you know, to 500 grams a week from memory mm. of red meat. And that equates in practical terms to one or two meals, Yeah, you know, a week. Yeah, It's totally. not that much. Yeah. And you put it beautifully as like this plate has an image of red meat on it. Yeah. So what does that mean? Like we need to eat it three times a day. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Needs totally, to be on yeah. every plate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, I, it's a great point. I was at a recent conference <laughs> where the audience was asked whether they recommend the eat well plate. And the audience was made up of nutritionists and doctors. Hardly anyone put their hand up. And I think that's quite telling of how even practitioners are quite skeptical of using a one-size-fits-all diet which I think is legitimate. It's a legitimate concern because I don't give the same nutrition advice. I don't give the same medical advice to different patients. I always tailor it to them. So it really depends on the individual. And I think it's very um, reductionist for us to just say, you know, you need to go vegetarian to protect yourself against cancer or you need to have meat for your protein needs, etc. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's very individual. So where do you think meat sits in with traditional diet? Are we meant to have meat every day or? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is really useful as a reference point for informing modern nutritional advice is um, is traditions, you know, and, and history. And, you know, it's been really curious for me to watch this emergence of what we call like the paleo diet, mm, you know, mm. which is a bit crazy because you can't get Stone Age food. I've looked for it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, But there is science on the paleo diet. It's a reasonable concept. Mm-hmm. But there seems to be this like complete disconnect between popular paleo diets yeah. and the actual research that's been done on traditional hunter-gatherers. Mm-hmm. Like with popular paleo diets, like people are waking up and having steak in the morning yeah. and, <laughs> yeah. you know, but the Kung hunter-gatherers in Africa who mm-hmm. are like practically vegetarian because mm, mm. it's really hard to catch meat you know animals yeah. <laughs> <laughs> takes a lot of work yeah so they're mostly living on plants mm, mm. and then if you look 
a bit more recently at traditional cultures, the same was true of agricultural societies. You know, they're not eating loads of meat traditionally. It was quite scarce and it was a luxury. So it's mostly plants uh, for them as well. Yeah, totally. You know, so for what does that say today? Well, it says, well, mostly plants. Mostly plants, It's yeah. probably the context of, for most people's traditional cultures and, yeah. and history is mostly plant-based plant diet. Based, yeah. And bringing in this concept of tradition is actually quite interesting because for listeners who aren't aware of Blue Zones, Blue Zones is a, is a concept that was pioneered by a couple of researchers, one of which was Michel Poulin. And they essentially travel around the world and they try to analyze why the longest living people were the longest living people. And they went to different parts of the world, including parts of Japan, parts of South America. And uh, they noticed a lot of similarities in how they were living their lives. One of the first observations was a largely simple plant-based diet with little meat. I think it was around 10% or something, uh, but also simple lifestyles, a strong sense of community. Faith was also noticed, having family connections as well, and the way they eat their food. I think that is very telling. It's not just about the food or the exact proportion of macronutrients or like, you know, having a paleo sort of diet. These, these people didn't have diets. They just ate. Yeah, I mean, that's such a beautiful point. I love the Blue Zones work and concept. And and really what it speaks to is that it doesn't really matter what your genetics are or where you are culturally in the world, that as long as the food that you're eating and the lifestyle you're living, you rightly point out, is adhering to, you know, some basic principles like traditional, seasonal, minimally processed mostly plants, mm. you're going to be pretty healthy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's, I mean, that's the beauty of the Blue Zones is it's a simple but really powerful message based on science and observation for mm. all of us. Absolutely. Yeah. And eat mostly plants. That's great. Um, dairy. Now, dairy is a really controversial hot topic. I get asked about it a lot. And I... I have the same sort of opinion as I would do when it comes to any animal product, and that's quality first, making sure that you're getting it from a good source, making sure you're trying to consume the best type of dairy that you can. But obviously, it doesn't sit well with a lot of people, and uh, some people might have intolerance, uh, and some people have strong opinions about whether they should be having dairy at all. Do you have any opinions on that yourself? Absolutely. It's... um. Your um, advice and opinion on this is is 100% on the money, is it's all about the quality of the dairy products we're eating. Firstly, if you look at the science, it's pretty clear that certain dairy products can be quite healthy, mm-hmm. others potentially associated with health risks. The healthy ones are typically the traditional dairy products. So they're yogurt and mm-hmm. ferment, you know, cheeses and, you know, these traditional foods, kefir, things like this have some really interesting health properties that are pretty well established. Mm. The flip side of that is modern sweetened milk drinks and whey protein Mm. and, you know, these sorts of things can be associated with adverse health effects. So keep it traditional. That's really important. Another side of it is that you are what you eat eats. Mm. If the cows that are producing the dairy that you're eating are feedlot fed and being fed loads of grain, Mm. the dairy that they're producing is not going to be very good for you because Mm. it changes the nutritional makeup of the dairy products, Mm. whereas if they're traditionally reared on grass or fed straw, Mm. uh, completely different profile and it will be much better for you. So it depends on the health of the animals, in fact. Absolutely. So that's a a really important side of it. And then the whole concern around dairy sensitivities and things is 
a little bit blown out of the water. You know, some people have lactose intolerance, mm. um, but that's easy to identify and easy to avoid. And some people have dairy sensitivity, but that's even rarer. Exactly. Yeah. And I yeah. always say, like, if anyone does have symptoms that they think are suggestive of lactose intolerance, then I would speak to your doctor, listen to your own symptoms, and then find out what sort of dietary strategy you should be doing to avoid those symptoms or find out whether it is dairy at all as well. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases, it's not dairy. There's a uh, lot of other things that we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, most cases of food sensitivity are not actually a food sensitivity. Yeah, People yeah. <laughs> overreact to what they're eating. There could be other reasons for what's going on. There are some people that would argue if you were to go on a largely plant-based diet or whether you were to go fully vegetarian or vegan, there might be some downsides. Are there any downsides that you've come across or that you're aware of if you were to go 100% on plants? Yeah, I think um, if you are transitioning to becoming completely vegan, there are a few caveats and that you know really comes down simply to the fact that there are certain nutrients that exist in meat that don't exist in plants or are not easily bioavailable, things like iron and B12 and this sort of thing. So there are a few things you should keep a check on. But generally speaking, if you're structuring your diet well and you're doing this in an intelligent way, not just like eating a normal Western diet and then avoiding all animal products, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you'll still get diabetes and heart disease <laughs> even if you're a vegan. But yeah. if you do it smartly and eat whole foods, minimally processed, mm. you know, the advice that you give, yeah. you could do it really well and be extremely healthy. You Absolutely. Know, yeah. You know, and we know that vegetarian diets are really good for you Mm, it's mm. really clear yeah absolutely yeah yeah. there are some arguments that suggest that it might be a question of genetics so i'm aware of some people having a genetic snip that prevents them from say converting certain types of vitamins namely vitamin a into the usable form of vitamin a in the body is there anything that you have concerns about from that point of view or do you think that's the minimum of of people the minority yeah that's such a good point because there's this real trend at the moment to like personalizing diet based on genes and and this kind of thing and the way i think about it is um in nutrition circles i'm a bit of an outlier because i don't know my genetics Mm. and i don't think it matters much yeah and the reason i think that is because you need to think of your genes as being secondary to your environment Mm. your environment and your diet are always going to override these genetic risk factors for nutritional problems Mm. and other chronic diseases Mm. so really when it comes to personalizing diet your genes don't matter that much yeah yeah i think which is quite revolutionary because i think over the last 10 15 years even from medicine we've kind of been drilled into our genetics being the blueprint of our life like we can predict our destiny i remember there being like um, a baby on the front cover of a a academic journal maybe it was time magazine where in the future we'd be able to predict exactly what age this particular baby is going to be at risk of having alzheimer's or diabetes etc Whereas actually, that's not the case, like you said. Our environment, our lifestyle has a really high predictive value, if not more so, or definitely more so, than our genetics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these genes, especially the nutritionally related genes, so these nutrient-gene interactions is what we call them, really become a problem only in Western industrialized diets. Mm. You know, that's when they really become pronounced. You know, if you've got a gene, for example that means you don't metabolize essential fatty acids very uh-huh. well, that's going to be a problem if you're eating the wrong essential fatty acids yeah. or not mm. enough of them. Mm. But if you're eating a traditional diet that's full of the right types of fatty acids mm. and lots of them, those genes actually don't matter much Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the, the diet's fine. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, 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 yeah. So it's an interesting way to think about personalizing food, but I think there's a a bigger picture that just comes down to eating well and that often will override these absolutely and yeah. i think the bigger picture is what we need to make loud and clear to a mm-hmm. lot of people because i think there is a lot of irrational scaremongering around these things and people understandably are fascinated by potentially having the key to health or to unlocking that 20 25 extra energy or extra benefits they can have from personalizing their diet Whereas the majority of people, particularly ones I see in the NHS and uh, during my emergency work, we just need to keep to the simple things. And Mm -hmm. that's what I'm I'm trying to bang that drum about as well. So um, I think we've covered a lot of things. Um, Plant-based protein, what do you think about um, people assuming that vegetarian diets are protein deficient? And do you think we need to be worried about protein in the diet if we are having largely plant-based diets? Absolutely not. And and there's a lot of lines of evidence to support that sort of just debunking that concern. And, you know, one of the more obvious ones is the work that has been done at Loma Linda University in California on the Seventh-day Adventists, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. these people for religious reasons are vegetarian. As a consequence, they're extremely healthy. Yeah. <laughs> they get very little cardiovascular disease. They live really long lives. Mm-hmm. And yeah. because of that, they've been studied intensively for mm-hmm for many years and you know it's quite clear if you just look at it at a very practical level yeah with examples like that of cultures that are very healthy and and but also vegetarian vegetarianism can be really good for you and you yeah. don't need to worry about protein at all mm, like mm. these people are doing just fine yeah 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 <laughs> um the reality is though on a practical sense um there are a lot of good protein rich vegetarian foods mm, you know yeah. like beans and legumes and mm. nuts and seeds mm. and tofu and tempeh traditional soy products so there's even grains to a degree are a great source of protein for vegetarians so there's a lot of traditional foods that fit well into a vegetarian diet that supply more than adequate amounts of protein for for function actually i've got a whole section a double spread on plant-based proteins in my book perfect Uh, just giving people a visual idea of like where you can actually find plant-based proteins but like you were saying it's not about just these individual macronutrients it's about the whole picture Mm -hmm. and the more pressing concern i think probably in western diets is lack of fiber and maybe protein rich diets that are high in meat might be causing a lot of issues that we see with like you know cardiovascular problems and cancers etc absolutely and that's one of the win-wins of vegetarian protein isn't yeah. it because yeah. it's not just protein it's beans exactly <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so it's full of prebiotic fiber it's amazing for your gut bacteria and yeah. you know, your overall health and it's not just fiber it's full of phytonutrients exactly and vitamins and minerals totally yeah. yeah amazing so keeping on the theme of practicality i'm just going to give a few actionable tips to get more vegetables in your diet it's something very really simple that everyone can do just having two portions of vegetables every meal time and fruit in between means you're probably going to be better than 90% of the population in terms of getting your five a day. Vegetables as the focus of your meal with meat on the side is a really simple idea to get into your heads to get more vegetables in your plates as well. You don't necessarily need to commit to three or four days meat-free every week. It seems like a bit of a mountain for a lot of people to climb. And um, actually, from my own personal experience, I used to assume that each meal, particularly evening meals, should have chicken or fish or red meat included in it. And the vegetables were kind of like an afterthought. But actually, once you start loading up 
vegetables onto your plate, you'll realize how satisfying vegetable meals can be and how easy it is to carry on with a vegetable focused diet. So doing things like folding spinach or using root vegetables or tubers as also known, making legumes from scratch like I teach you in the book or using canned and packaged products that have lentils, chickpeas and beans are brilliant for replacing meat and bulking up meals as well. And also eating nuts and seeds are great satiating snacks that introduce fiber and quality whole fats which are fantastic for health. So I think we've made a bit of a case for eat more plants uh, and the fact that most diets are saying this is the central thing. Um, what do you think, Ben? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's super simple. Eat plants. Eat plants. Plenty, plenty of them. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so make sure you subscribe to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, or whatever your favorite podcast player is for notifications so you don't miss new episodes. You don't want to miss any new episodes. And give us a five-star rating. They make a huge impact on how this information is spread. You can tweet us at doctors underscore kitchen. Check out the Instagram and my website, doctorskitchen.com. And you can also sign up for more information. You can tweet Ben Brown at Ben Brown ND and his podcast is The Positive Health Podcast. I definitely recommend you check it out. It's awesome and it's on iTunes as well. 